Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm Congressman Jared Huffman, and tonight, uh, because it is night in Washington, D.C., uh, I'm sitting around my uh, kitchen table with my two roommates, my two D.C. roommates, Congressman Dan Kildee from Michigan, Congressman Mike Levin from Southern California, and we're going to have the roommate edition of the podcast. So let's get started by asking them each to just introduce themselves, but we have a twist into tonight's podcast that I'll mention here in just a moment. Dan, who are right. you? I'm Dan Kildee. I am from Flint, Michigan, and I mention that once in a while. Yeah, quite. <laughs> um, I represent the 5th District, which is Flint, Saginaw, Bay City, and up along the Lake Huron shoreline, really diverse district. Came to Congress uh, at the same time Jared did. We came in together, we're classmates. Um, the great class of 2012. An amazing, amazing group of people. Everybody's running for president. Everybody except us. We're, we're the there's, two. there's no announcements pending. We are the only two potential vice presidential nominees in the whole group. Um, but I, you know, I grew up in Flint. Was in local government. Got elected to public office when I was 18, and spent 30 years in local government before doing a bunch of policy work and then coming back to public life to be here with you. And you now serve on the Ways and Means Committee. On the Ways and Means Committee and, and on the Budget Committee. Excellent. All Chief right. Deputy Whip, don't forget that. Well, and you are the senior tenant in this household, uh, but now we go to the junior tenant, our newest uh, Yes, and hence I have the smallest bedroom yeah, in, in, in the townhouse. Yeah, I, I have, have the smallest rent, too. This I, is true. Mike Levin, freshman sensation. Uh, you know. Well, I, uh, I'm honored to be uh, roommates with you, Jared, and uh, my district is in Southern California, and, and you too, Dan. Oh. <laughs> Dan, for those that are wondering, Dan was waving his arms saying, what about me? Um, so my district for 17 years, 18 years, was represented by Daryl Issa. Mr. Issa decided to retire. Listeners um, of my podcast are hissing right yes, now, but keep uh, going. Uh, and we ran a very uh, good race, and we wound up winning uh, in a tough district. Uh, I love this job. I love the work that we do, despite it being kind of a crazy period. We all have to walk and chew gum at the same time. And my district is uh, coastal Southern California, South Orange County, where I'm from, uh, Northern San Diego County, uh, Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton in the middle, UC San Diego, Scripps Institute of Oceanography, great, great district. and. Just incredibly honored to serve. All right, here comes the twist in tonight's podcast, <coughs> because uh, three members of Congress are about to hand their fate over to a member of the Capitol Hill Press. A stupid decision. To... <laughs> <laughs> daily choice for opening. Yeah, well, that's true too. So uh, Matt Fuller of the Huffington Post uh, is a veteran uh, Capitol Press Corps member. He stalks the Capitol every single day. Uh, if you don't follow him on Twitter, you should, because uh, he is insightful. He tweets uh, at. He tweets at. What do you tweet at, Matt? Uh, MEP Fuller. You have a lot MEP of Twitter Fuller. followers, man. I've got, I've got some followers. Yeah. But you guys got some followers. <laughs> Trying to catch up to you. We yeah, do. So, so Matt's from the Huffington Post. 
And uh, we are just going to take this conversation wherever he wants to take it. He's in charge. Welcome. All right. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, you guys actually stole my first question. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I, you know, it's, it's interesting uh, to, to sort of talk in this venue, but I was sort of interested how you guys got to Congress. I know that's sort of a softball, but I always, I always open with a softball. Um, but just in like the, an elevator conversation, how did you get here and sort of what, you know, what drove you to Congress? I guess we'll start with you. So uh, this is Mike. I've been involved in democratic politics in Southern California for a very long time. Uh, when Donald Trump uh, became the front runner of the Republican Party and the nominee of the party, uh, I read and researched a whole lot about him and I felt then as I do now that he represented something fundamentally different, uh, a threat to our democratic institutions. Uh, and I decided that I needed to take personal action, so I did, and I worked very hard to try to prevent him from becoming the president and to try to help Secretary Clinton for you know what it's worth. I think she would have been a great president. Uh, I was there in New York, New York City, uh, Javits Center on election night, and uh, when we saw the results, I decided basically the next morning at the JetBlue terminal of JFK to look into this. I'd been approached about it before. Uh, I knew that it would be a tough race against Daryl Issa, who was the wealthiest member of Congress. Uh, but I thought we could win. You know, he had nearly been defeated the prior year, and I felt we could run a really strong campaign. So uh, eventually my wife, uh, who was initially pretty reluctant, became the most important asset I had on the entire campaign trail. Uh, and uh, we were able to pull off a great victory. Uh, but it was really about trying to uh, protect our democratic institutions and trying to uh, be proud of the uh, of the government. But Trump was a big part of you. Oh, I wouldn't be here but for Donald Trump. No question about that. In multiple ways, probably. Right? Very true. No, I would have been very content with the Clinton presidency and probably working on clean energy policy for her in some capacity, formally and formally, hard to say. But, uh, you know, I probably wouldn't be in Congress right now. Yeah. Well, everybody in this podcast knows my background. I was an environmental attorney at NRDC, six years in the state assembly, doing a lot of environmental policy work. And uh, lo and behold, just as I was being termed out of the state legislature, our longtime member of Congress, Lynn Woolsey, uh, announced that she was retiring. And so um, that landed me here. Why do you stay in Congress, though? See, Why I do I stay in Congress? Yeah, this is a, this well, now that we're in the well, now that we're in the majority, Matt, it's it's a much better job, uh, and I'm beginning to uh, understand the policy opportunities and the possibilities that, frankly, were rarely available to me my first six years. So it could be a very fun job, and um, you know, fun is not the word most of us would uh, use to describe this climate we serve in. Uh, but it's it's important and it's meaningful. Congressman Kilby. Well, I grew up in a family that was really involved in politics. Your uncle. My uncle was in the state legislature for when I was from when I was a very young child, and then. How many times a day do people still call you Dale Kilby? Yeah, I about one a day. <laughs> okay. Uh, which is great. I'm from '27. Uh, you know, and so he was elected to Congress the year that I was a senior in high school. And five months later, I was elected to the school board. I was involved in what we then called liberal democratic politics. I was a social worker, worked at an alternative newspaper uh, that was owned and run by a guy who went on to make films. Uh, Michael Moore. Michael Moore. And so Michael, he doesn't name drop the way he should. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Right. 
Michael ran my campaign for school board. And, oh, really? You know, yeah. So that really launched, like, then what was my local government career. And then fell into some work on urban regeneration and invented some cool ideas on urban redevelopment. Banking and Land banking. Yeah. And uh, that was fun. I, I was in county government for 25 years. But, you know, then when um, my uncle decided to retire, I was really doing well doing policy work around the country, but I thought the moment had maybe passed because, you know, when I was 18 and I got elected to the school board, I was at the front of the line that was not moving. I was, it was like the old days when you used to go to the bank and you'd get in the line behind one person thinking that was the fastest line, and then you realized it was someone with a bag of pennies. <laughs> that's, kind of, that's how I felt for 36 years. It was years. Uncle Dale. It was Uncle Dale. <laughs> he had the bag of pennies. Um, but then when he uh, he decided to retire, it took me all 10 minutes to decide. <laughs> Jump to in. It. It's just always been your family. Yeah. It's always been your passion, though. And, you, you know, yes, you're why stay. I made a very conscious decision to stay after Trump yeah. was elected. I was, People yeah. leaned on Dan to run for governor. Yeah, right. I've heard that rumor many times. Ready to run, but... Uh, with Trump's election, it felt like the certainty of fighting against a force that I thought was a really dark and evil force, and I, I use those words intentionally, made me decide, look, I can't give up a year of a campaign that would draw me away from that and sort of pretend I was holding this job. That This was a, this was a danger. This, he represents a clear present danger to our democracy. And I'm walking away right now would just not even be an option. And you know the op- the opportunity that it turned into, mm-hmm. being not only in the majority but uh, in a different position within the house, turned out really well. Yeah. All right, so I've got plenty of questions about you guys being roommates, but <laughs> I, I, I that's coming. But I one question was sort of raised here, and, and I think you sort of raised it that um, the Trumpism is sort of a special. Brand. And there's a, yeah. sort of an ongoing debate, I think, within uh, Democratic politics, within Republican politics, that is Trump a product of Republicanism, mm-hmm. or is he something outside of it, right. special to it? Absolutely. Well, the racism, the xenophobia, those were all undercurrents well before Donald Trump. Uh, frankly, uh, the greed and the, the lack of empathy for uh, you know, our, our fellow Americans and, and citizens of the world. Um, those were all things that Trump really fed off of. Mm-hmm. So you're right. I think either party could have been vulnerable. I mean, any party is always vulnerable to a demagogue, right? A populist demagogue that comes along. But those elements really fit with who Trump was. And, and I think he knew it. And it just took off. And it's now his party. Right. But he found a certain traction because you know, it was partly there. Right. Is that what you're... Some of it, I think. Now, there are other parts of it that were definitely not there. I mean, he's got mm-hmm. them all... He's got them all loving Russia and hating uh, trade. <laughs> right. You know? Right. So he's done some weird things to the Republican well, part Party. Part of the Republican Party now is winning, right? If you win, yeah. sort of a biker gang mentality. I actually think it's coming around to the Democratic Party, too, a little bit. Colin at, Powell at any, called it a at dark any cost. intolerance. Yeah. That's, yeah. And it's still yeah. there. I mean, he, he made reference to that, I believe, in... Before a certain, it seems a little bit to me like a main vein in some ways. Well, it is. I believe it is for this president. You want to give us the the uh, sort of in the middle 
approach here? Yeah, I mean, I mean <laughs> my, my district's a little Trumpy in a lot of ways. Right. It's an older district. What do voters, and I mean, you know, in your, in your district, you do have a lot of voters who, who, who still see something yeah. in Trump. Well, I, I think what they see, you know, and this is where, like, some of it's regional. In Michigan, I think, was an important right. case. We're a community, the communities I represent have seen two periods of uh, protracted economic growth in which they did not participate. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Clinton economic expansion that we talked about that was supposed to usher Al Gore into the presidency, when the message from Democrats was something like, keep this growth going. Mm-hmm. People in my community what said, are you crazy? what are you talking about? Yeah. And then the implicit message, even though it was far from explicit, in the Clinton campaign was that the Obama uh, 78 months or whatever it is of sustained economic growth should be continued with the policies that we promote. They're just done with that. They want to see something much more tangible. And I think both parties have some responsibility for the regional and uh, other you know sort of inequities that we have in our economy. That's the undercurrent that I think took Michigan the direction that it did in, in my district. But back to this question of the party, there once was a Republican Party, and we haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah. And the, I think the biggest shame of all of this is how quickly hmm. con- conventional Republicans show their true colors oh, yeah. by essentially saying, you cut taxes, you We're can good. marginalize <laughs> anybody you judges. Mm. pollute anything you want to pollute, marginalize any population you want to marginalize, you cut the taxes, we're good. And judges. Yeah, judges. the judges. And that's the sure. only yeah. thing the Senate's doing these days. Yeah. So the first, judges. the last Congress, first couple days of the Trump presidency, I don't know if you were following this, Matt, um, but the Republican caucus, which, you know, had survived our challenge, people thought the Democrats might take back the House. We, everybody thought the Democrats would win the presidency. We show up those first few days of January and uh, someone in their caucus distributed Make America Great Again red hats at mm. their first Kathy caucus. Kathy Rogers. Was it Kathy yeah, Morris Rogers or a Republican? But I remember talking to several of my Republican colleagues about how, you know, many of them felt a little squeamish or weird about it, but they all kind of put on the hats. Mm-hmm. And they've been wearing those hats ever mm-hmm. since. But something I see all the time is, and I think that, uh, you know, maybe I'm, I'm an idiot, but I think it's true that, you know, all the positions that we sort of heard, you guys really were sort of a representative opinion of your district. Now, maybe you guys sort of forming that opinion uh, a little bit because of the politics of it, but also because that's, you know, the people you're interacting with and seeing. What I'm hearing from you is, yeah, Trumpism is something special. I hear a little bit, yes, you know, there's a special thread of it, but you also see sort of the roots of, and I think all of you sort of agree. But um, I am <laughs> very curious about this, because uh, you guys all, you guys all, all our roommates, how difficult would it be to live with a Republican who fundamentally believes, you know, well, you know, and there are certain um, Republicans who reject elements of Trumpism. I, mm-hmm. I know you had Jeff Fortenberry on the pod- yeah. podcast, and he's, you know, he's not the Trumpiest guy. He, he uses the word in politic, right? But he, <laughs> um, he, no, his, his personal disposition and values are totally at odds with Trumpism. But he, gets there, but he still gets there. Have come around, and, and, and I, I would say that the purpose of that podcast, in, in large part, was probably to prove, hey, Republicans and Democrats can still get along. And you guys sort of fought a little bit still. So yeah. I'm wondering, at the end of the day, how difficult it would be to actually live with 
yeah. a Republican who you see every day and you're like, you know, I'm yes, you're no, or I'm no, you're yes every time. Well, I want these guys to each answer that in their opinion, but my view is that the living together is not the problem. Um, I think I could live with a Republican probably just fine. Uh, and I have a whole bunch of Republican colleagues that I get along with on a social level, you know, at a, at a level of courtesy and, and mm -hmm. even friendship. It's just fine. It, it's the politics that break down. I think we'd have to have a difficult conversation about uh, the president. I was uh, actually at where we see a lot of Republican colleagues is at the gym in the morning. Yeah. And I asked one of them, you know, Trump had said something particularly crazy. And kind of the interesting thing, so there's a cardio room. It's not particularly fancy or big or anything, but they have three TVs at the front. And they're usually on the three networks, right? So MSNBC, CNN, and Fox. And it's like you're watching like three different planets. You know, Although when it's just Republicans, it's Fox, then they put on the Fox, Fox Channel. And Fox Business. And, and then it's Fox oh, Business. Maybe ESPN. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you gotta, you got to catch your Lou Dobbs. Cause, uh, exactly. But, the president uh, certainly does. There was a Republican who I know very well. I don't want to say who it was, but I, Trump had said something ridiculous, and I don't even remember. But I said, you know, why do you support this guy? Why do you keep supporting this guy? And his comment to me, I, I won't forget, it was this is all the way back in January. He said, look, man, I'm one tweet from Donald Trump away from yeah. losing my seat. So yeah. he's worried about a Trumper from the right coming to get him. And well, they all that's where that's his yeah. his political calculus, and I think that's sad. because yeah. I'd like to think that we'll all serve here for however long we can, and then we'll be able to look back proudly and know that we did what we did because we felt it was right, and that's you know kind of the measure that I always try to use. But never um, underestimate how much many members of Congress are motivated first, foremost, and in some cases entirely by self-preservation. Yeah, that's true. So single single-minded seekers by election. Yeah. By that by that logic, we'd all be better off if Donald Trump, perhaps better off if Donald Trump were reelected, because that would enable us to have a foil for the next several years. And Trump is deeply unpopular in our districts, particularly yours and mine, Jared. And yeah. uh, that's just not how I, I feel. I would rather not have Donald Trump as president, uh, not have anyone like Donald Trump be president yeah. ever again. Uh, get somebody who I actually think. Uh, is a person of integrity and decency back in the Oval Office, and if that costs us electorally, so be it. Yeah, I agree. So, I, I, I mean, I, I, and this is something I hear a lot from my own conversations with Republicans. Privately, they will, and maybe they're playing me too, but um, privately they will sort of slam Trump or they'll take sort of yeah. a... You know, you know what? But I was going to mention this. But what does it count Not for? Not as much That's, anymore. I, I also agree with that because I, I remember at the very beginning, yeah. I used to get that a lot and they've, and they've all come around. Well, okay. no, there were some who would do that privately and then occasionally stand behind it. Remember Mark Sanford? Oh, mm -hmm. that's right. Mm -hmm. He got primary. Mm-hmm. And, well, the, and that district, in that district, went to a Democrat. Yeah, I, I agree with you. A lot of well, you a lot of those seats that were held by those members who were, who found him so offensive are now held by Democrats since. There are a handful, and I, we don't want to throw them under the bus because we right. don't want to, them. but there are only a handful left. Well, and Trump made it all about him on election night, if you remember his election For night sure. uh, analysis. He it's said, amazing well, to think that Trump could take a situation and make, make it, it all about him. him. <laughs> yeah. Who would have ever <laughs> thought I, that But possible? I remember, and I, I've covered the Freedom Caucus very closely for years, and those guys initially were not there on Trump at all. Right. I remember a few of those very prominent Freedom Caucus members. Yeah. Telling me privately he was a racist, 
I remember he's not coming a from the Freedom Caucus. That's saying something. Yeah, he's not a Republican. Yeah, I'm only voting for the Republicans on the ballot, and that was a very coy way of saying I'm not voting for him. And now that's just not where they're at, and not not where they're at at all. The whole you know the the group uh, save Justin Amash has gone entirely Trump. Wow. Well, let's t- I get let's just jump right back in. I mean, uh, obviously this is a house you guys had Beto O'Rourke as one of your former roommates. You want to talk yeah. about some of the former tenants here who've come through? So the first tenant I took in, uh, so I own this place, but the only way I can make the mortgage is by having congressional roommates. <laughs> I'm not a wealthy man. Um, and my first tenant was Mark DeSaulnier, mm-hmm. uh, my longtime friend from across the bay. Good guy. Um, then we uh, quickly took in Beto O'Rourke, uh, and Beto was my roommate for three years. DeSaulnier uh, moved on to a, you know, he's an opportunist. He found a cheaper deal. <laughs> <laughs> And then, to me, uh, this was the cheaper deal. This was, <laughs> that's right. Uh, so uh, it was Salud Carbajal from Santa Barbara um, who uh, got elected and joined us. So Beto and Salud and I for two years. And then um, Salud moved on. Dan Kildee took Salud's place. And uh, then we all know the Beto O'Rourke story. And that's where Mike Levin comes in. And he, uh, he ran a Senate campaign on the table where we're doing this podcast, is my understanding. Well, so, if you recognize the colors in this room, I mean, a lot of Beto's streaming stuff during his Senate campaign. I was going to say, yeah. It was right here. When I got here. streaming haircuts in the living room? <laughs> <laughs> when well, I got here, there was a box of his stuff in the basement. And I think. There still that, is. There still is. Is there still? I thought his you, bike is still thought you were going to put. Oh, we got to put it on eBay. Beto, if oh, you're listening actually, to this, we're yeah. putting all your stuff on eBay, and we're going to make a fortune. Beto, It'll Beto be great. Was that in the lease? <laughs> yeah, right. So I, 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 how, how was he as a roommate, though? Beto was great, actually. Now, Beto was a fantastic roommate. Uh, Beto really tried to uh, live a normal life when he was here. He would like go to the, the corner market and buy groceries every week, fresh groceries, and he would make breakfast every morning. Huh. He would come home at night and he would he would uh, pile his laptop up on books so it would be head level and Skype with these um, town hall meetings simultaneously in like 10 different cities in Texas. Wow. And I would walk in the door and I would hear these screaming crowds. And in each one of these places, there would be thousands of people uh, and Beto's talking to them from our kitchen. Wow. So it was, it was quite an experience. You know, the one thing that's interesting about it, and I don't know if this has been the case with your other roommates. But there's a there's a rhythm to the three of us in terms of our schedules. That yeah, really, yeah, it works. Really we only have one bathroom upstairs, yeah. by the way. There's and a sort of bathroom downstairs. There's a little yeah. half bath downstairs. Yeah, in case of emergency. The only thing that complicates it is that right now, most mornings we're all at baseball practice. Yeah, that's yes. one complicating factor. And then we, when we come back, we've got to all kind of get ready for our day. And so yeah. there's a little bit of air traffic. So you guys control. are getting up, though, very early because baseball practice. 7 a.m. baseball. Yeah, yeah we do anyway. Baseball. I don't know. Usually I'm up, yeah. or you're up. You're up, you're up. I'm up pretty early. You're up. You're an early bird. I'm a, yeah. I'm a night owl. I'm usually, so we're on, naturally our rhythms are different and so it works, but yeah. baseball has complicated. But you're up to the gym a little after six most yeah, mornings. That's right. I'm usually up right after you leave. Yeah. And then you're still on California time all the time. I'm always working until midnight yeah. and beyond, yeah. Who is the sort of, I mean, it doesn't sound like anyone's a slob here, but who's the, who's the one who you do have some issues with? <laughs> oh, now you're you're going there, aren't you? You're trying to d- divide and conquer. 
we'd have to make it up. I, yeah. I don't really think, I can't think I of think no friction all, at all. I, th I think all three of us are pretty grounded because we've got really great uh, wives. I mean yeah. that sincerely. That's yeah. true. The wives are important and they all get along. They come yeah. too. Yeah. That's the other thing that uh, not all, not, I don't think yet once we've all had all six under the same. It'll happen. But it will happen. We'll have a big party. My wife uh, comes here about once a month because she yeah. works for the American Bar Association. So these guys see her and your wife and kids have both have all been I'm here. I'm trying to get her back for the baseball game. I love having families around. And you, your wife, and I yep. saw your daughter. And, yeah. You know, so it's, you know, it's, it's one big happy family <laughs> so far. Life is too busy Don't to, uh, <laughs> you know, to, to uh, not just kind of have a set routine. Mm -hmm. I picked my roommates well. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I am wondering how, how you got in, into this. I mean, he, I guess it was like, well... Well, you know, well what happened... Mean? No, what happened with me is I had nowhere to live. I didn't know where I was going to live. <laughs> uh -huh. And um, we hadn't... You know, the election wasn't done yet. It was looking good, though, because yeah. my Republican opponent was self-destructing. I went down to your and district <laughs> to campaign with you. Jared came out. He did an event for me. We drove out to an event. And uh, he mentioned that he had a place and that, you know, if Beto O'Rourke... Uh, you know, stayed as a senator. I guess he would have uh, yeah. remained here, right? Had he, won, had he, he beat Ted Cruz. Yeah. Uh, but when Beto lost, I was really bummed out when Beto lost. But I also said, "Man, I got to call Huffman because yeah. I have a place to live." <laughs> yeah, uh, get that lease. Well, DC real estate. I had dibs on the bigger room, by the way. It's one. Of I know the, you did. When DC you're a new member of Congress, actually figuring out where you're going to live is one of the most stressful things. Yeah, yeah. because you don't have a lot of time. And it's a crazy market, and there's a lot of competition. Well, all the apartments around here are ridiculously expensive. Yeah. We make good money as a member of Congress. We live in, I live in a high-cost area uh, where our housing costs at home are expensive. And, uh, you know, being able to have as little rent as possible while still having a nice place to live is really important. We get no housing assistance, contrary to... What you might no housing assistance, and you know, sixty to seventy members of Congress actually sleep in their offices, right. which I think is a horrible think, thing to do. Now? We should no. talk about We're that. Still doing it. Yeah, okay. it's it's absolutely ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous. And it's mostly Republicans. To, I know that it is. It is. And I will you admit that I tried it a couple times. The interesting thing is, you have to pay taxes if you have a designated parking spot. But not if you live there. But not if you use but It, cr it the, creates such an awkward situation. Uh, terrible. Yeah. I couldn't imagine my staff having to deal with the fact well, there's that there's that. We're setting up your yeah. cop for you? Or? It's just ridiculous. It's I know that uh, uh, Derek Kilmer has the uh, Select Committee on Modernization. I know they're going to look at this. He wants to address wants this. Wants to address this. They also want to look at our schedule because right now we've got four days a week when we're here, usually Monday through Thursday, sometimes Tuesday through Friday, but if you've noticed, like the amount of floor time that we really have could probably be condensed. Right. So the discussion is uh, two weeks on, two weeks off, uh, five days a week. Yeah. And I personally, as somebody that goes back and forth, I've got a young family. Right. I actually really like seeing my wife and kids and actually, you know, spending time with them. Crazy idea. That's like a 50-50 shot in Congress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But if I could, you know, spend more time with it's them. It's the hardest part of the job. The other thing is, yeah. uh, you know, in a difficult district, uh, part of a, the, the reason I think we did so well is we did 197 house parties and all these other things. And so I've already done all these town hall meetings and starting up the house parties again. Uh, the more dedicated district time I have, the better uh, visibility in the district, the better responsiveness in the district to the concerns of residents there. 
So it's a, it's a balancing act. And, you know, in the 90s, things really changed. I guess before the 90s, uh, most people lived here. You know, they would see each other on the weekends. So that was good in a sense where they congregated and socialized and got business done. We actually get a lot of business done on the floor itself. We're out there talking to each other about the legislation we're working on. Or I've said that many times. Yeah. The, the oh, it's productive time. But yeah. it's replaced. Yeah, everybody you're, not out, you're not out there hanging out. You're, you're down there yeah. saying, well, we, okay, we, I've got a We plan issue. for our floor time. I mean, we have a... I mean, Dan's the deputy goal. whip, so he's out there making sure we don't screw up. Yeah. <laughs> any, any, anytime <laughs> one of us goal. goes to the floor, odds are we've got two or three things we need to accomplish yeah. Yeah. with a colleague or many colleagues on the floor and have you ever noticed while you're voting. And it's whoever true. you're looking for, yeah. you can't find them. Can't find the them. one person you cannot I know. Find. It's always true. It drives right. me nuts. How, far, how hard could it be to find right. Jose Serrano? I was trying to find him today. He was not there. Uh, I, I was wondering, are there ever, what's the food situation here? How do you guys <laughs> there's do you a whole family dinners? There's, yeah, a whole foods. Pizza. there's yeah, a <laughs> There's a Whole Foods down the street. Every man for himself. That's a new development, though. The Whole, whole Foods, foods going in. Um, not new to me. It's changed. Oh, it is uh, it's a wonderful this thing. This is a big deal. It's been bad for the corner bodega a couple blocks. Yeah. Mm. But it's, it's, it's helpful. It's so close. But members of Congress, as you might imagine, we are often eating meals at events and receptions. And so I don't think any of us buy huge volumes of groceries. No. It's not particularly glamorous. I remember my first week, I went in the cloakroom and I saw Steny Hoyer eating a bowl of tomato soup. And I said, this is how it really yeah. is. Huh? I thought we had lunch at the Mr. Paul every day. <laughs> <laughs> I think you got to go to the other side for that one. Yeah, right. Well, the, the cloakroom, you can get a decent uh, turkey Soup. sandwich. <laughs> Soup or a turkey sandwich. You they can make a, a good sandwich for like, for like $4, $5. It's actually the quite crab reasonable. Salad. It might be crab with a K, but the crab yeah. salad. <laughs> it's a little copyright. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I, 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 just to sort of close the loop on the roommate stuff, though, I, I mean, I... I just have this image of a new member coming here and like having to turn to Craigslist <laughs> and showing up at you know a house with like four 25 year olds yeah like a middle-aged no, guy you know it, hey, a, lot my, uh, a lot of my classmates uh, have decided to room together mm-hmm. um, you know others have found uh, you know uh, existing members I was really fortunate uh, when Jared said that he had a place to live potentially back in whatever, September or October yeah. last year. So I just sort of lucked out. Uh, but, you know, we all make it work one way or another. And we don't sleep in our offices because that's yeah. ridiculous. That's nasty. Yeah. You know, and if, I, you're, if you're listening to this and you're one of the members that do it, stop. I, uh, Juan Vargas. When I came here, I, th- I told myself two things. One which turned out not to be true. Um, that I, I knew for sure I would never sleep in my office. Yeah. And that's absolutely not Well, we happen. learned that Jared tried. Two but nights, and it didn't go well. <laughs> I did not sleep well. Did was Susan I, behind the decision? I, she, she wanted me to sleep in my office. <laughs> yeah, right. She's a cheapskate. Yeah. But I'll tell you, the other thing was, I thought I was way past the time of my life uh, where I would have roommates. Huh. And so my, when, when I got elected, my wife moved here. She works for the American Bar Association. So she, you know, has a job that is PC-based. And then, um, oh, about a year or so ago, she decided to move back home, uh, partly for health reasons. It was just better for her to be there. And I still never thought that I would 
uh, have roommates. And but you came over here a couple times. I came over here a couple times, but mm. this Jared's got to hear this. He is he is cooler than the other side of the pillow. Oh, yeah, that's he true. He is just like the you know the reason I thought I could do this is because he's just like just a mellow guy, just cool, yeah. smart, that nice, nice, no drama. And I thought, well, I could I could Jared, I could handle. <laughs> and then you know, Mike turns out to be a, a he's okay gift. too. He's a gift. <laughs> Yeah, I think the thing is he gets out early in the morning. Is it like, <laughs> I never see him. Is it like the fruitcake at Christmas though? It might be that kind of gift. I don't know. <laughs> right. Once a year sort of thing. Well, as far as Jared being mellow, you know, you have to catch him in natural resources when Don Young is uh, threatening him physically. That's usually. The, <laughs> I can get unmellow pretty quick. <laughs> One of that's a story tradition mm-hmm. of Don Young threatening members of oh, Congress. This God. is an eighty-five-year-old man. Oh, he's something. Well, all I know is, you know, I, I read his bio. We had a thing for him on the floor where they were honoring him for being the dean of the house. And yep. he got here when he was 40. Now he's 85. I got here when I was 40. My friend Adam Schiff got here when he was 40. And I turned, I was sitting with Adam. I turned to Adam. I say, hey, man, are you going to be here till you're, till you're 85? He said, not a chance, pal. <laughs> not a chance. Yeah. I, so just, again, just to I guess close the loop on the roommate thing, the thing that I, I think everyone's sort of fascinated by is... You know, you have this idea of members of Congress, sort of powerful, and then it's like having to deal with very normal roommate issues, laundry. right? Right, laundry. Who's buying the laundry detergent? Who's picking up the toilet paper? Yeah, like I did leave my laundry in the dryer. Mine is actually downstairs uh, as well. Somebody switch that out. Yeah, somebody had to switch it out. There you go. But see, so you guys, I guess it. You know, the thing. I've been around here long enough to know that you guys are very normal people. Yeah, generally. Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, with an incredible sense of entitlement, <laughs> but, but I mean, there I, is some of that. Um, it seems like you guys are, don't have any problem dealing with those, I guess, normal roommate things. You know, any of this? I bet we've all had bad roommate experiences at other times mm-hmm. in our life. Uh, everybody has. Uh, this is just a good. It's a good group, and you know, I, I wasn't kidding that I. I picked my roommates pretty carefully. I wouldn't. Well, have been I, lost. I will know you yeah. were you were lining them up even before Beto had lost. Mm-hmm. You were sort of <laughs> oh, you got the best plan for the worst. Oh yeah. yeah. This situation, I haven't really told you guys this, but it reminds me of law school a lot because I had two great roommates in law school. The difference is that we paid fourteen hundred for the entire place. Yeah. Three, three yeah. bedroom, three and a half bathroom, plenty of parking. You went to Duke. That was Durham, North Carolina. But yeah. yeah. But even, and of course, it was like nearly 20 years ago, which is kind mm-hmm. of scary. But uh, no, I mean, we've stayed close all these years as well. And I know that the three of us will. Um, you know, we, I, I feel like uh, members of Congress, uh, not everybody gets along, but uh, most everybody at least respects one another because we know what we have to go through. Mm-hmm. Well, we uh, also, uh, you know, there are, there are things we can check in with each other on uh, because we trust each other and know each other yeah. better than most of our colleagues. It, there's value in that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's great to be able to, uh, you know, float some trial balloons with these guys. So, right. and I know I can trust them. So yeah. that's nice. I'm, well, we need those relationships. These are my mentors right here. Whether they know it or not, they are, and I oh, watch well, them. You know, we're so much older. Like a sponge. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm, well, I'm older. I'm the oldest. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's talk just a, a couple a couple substantive issues. Right. Well, I yeah. We, wait. We haven't been talking. Substance. <laughs> no. You want substance? I know. <laughs> With the last five minutes, <laughs> yeah. Um, Iran, uh, obviously, uh, I don't know exactly when this is going to air, but 
certainly this is a, a, something at the forefront. Right. Um, I I will I'll, I'll give Ben O'Rourke a lot of credit for this. He was someone who was um, very out there about we need a new AUMF, new yeah. authorization yeah. for military force. That seems like an issue. I I continue to think that this is a true both Bar- sides. Barbara is spot on. Yeah. What does Barbara Lee say? Well, she's been leading that fight in appropriations every single year uh, and actually succeeded uh, a couple of years ago, had a bi- bipartisan support on uh, a new AUMF. Right. The first vote. Only uh, to have us all find out, I guess there's a special rule well, where the, uh, the majority leader at the time, Kevin McCarthy, could yank that and change it. And, hmm. um, I mean, Kevin, all the current belligerence that's out there is... It's a, it's a wild contortion to put it under the previous AUMF. Iran, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. there's just no relationship. Makes no sense. No relationship. Well, but the administration's been building that case for a couple weeks now. That, I know they do. And, 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 but and everybody just, sees right through it. Yeah. Sure, but we, I mean, you should, we probably could, we could say the same about Barack Obama. We've used this name, the same AUMF, uh, I think... In 14 different countries? Well, the and difference they, was, to his credit, he was willing to have us bring forward a new AUMF. Mm-hmm. He invited us to do it. Huh. We're not hearing anything like that from the Trump administration. Even, I think, wrote one at one point. Yeah. But that was, like, dead on arrival. Right. It was two or three years ago. I think it has a lot to do with just the congressional authority generally, too. Yeah. The atrophy of congressional authority and, and just the stomach for... For making the tough decisions on things like war powers. Yeah. I was encouraged with the resolution in both the House and Senate on Yemen, sure. uh, which the president vetoed. Kind of a zigzag uh, process. Right. Because Paul Ryan right. blocked a vote on as one right. of his last acts. And then yeah. the whole issue with the NPR that brought it back to the House. But I agree that we need a new AUMF. Uh, I know that Tim Kaine has been working on it in the Senate as well. For years, yeah. Uh, I would love... Uh, for that to happen sooner rather than later. and I think it can happen in this Congress. It needs to. No, I, I think Barbara to. Lee will succeed this year in the House, and, and then the pressure will be on the Senate. And, when, uh, soon uh, and the Tom only Mayo. member of Congress to vote against the 2001 AMF is right. Lee. Yeah. Right. Yep. When Pompeo uh, classified part of the Iranian uh, military as a terrorist organization, uh, and now, of course, the Boltons of the world are exacerbating tensions uh, Feinstein was on the phone, I guess, with the Iranian uh, foreign minister the other day, and that was caught, you know, where basically she said, look, you know, they don't want a war. They're not interested in fighting a war. Uh, I'm very concerned, you know, particularly if uh, there are those who unnecessarily exacerbate conflict, uh, who uh, see a political or uh, economic benefit. Uh, We just shouldn't be sending our men and women. Here's the thing, nobody should believe for a second this narrative that the White House is putting out that, oh gosh, Bolton is the one that, you know, keeps taking us right up to the mm. brink of war and Trump's really, uh, you know, conflicted dove, and does, doesn't want to go there. Yeah. None of this happens without Trump's blessing. Yeah. He knows exactly what's going on and he's just leaving himself um, plausible, you know, deniability. plausible deniability. And the problem is it gets complicated because Iran is a bad actor. But... We still have to acknowledge that the precipitating event was the withdrawal from the JCPOA. Yeah. That that gave Iran, especially the hardliners, all they needed to make the case that America can't be trusted. A lot of people say, oh, it's just cowardice, right? It's the atrophy of Congress. And then you have another group of people who say, oh, I'll vote on, I think all three of you, I'll vote on a, a new AUMF right now, I'll repeal the 2001 authority. Yeah. 
I'll vote on a new authority. But the problem is Republicans and Democrats do not agree on what that AUMF should look like. Mm -hmm. Which which, which means that the country should not commit the lives of our young people and the treasury. What should the default setting be when Congress cannot agree on the use of military force? Probably not using military force. But the problem is you have a default setting of this overly broad 2001 AUMF that that they might... They might disagree on on whether or not it's it's actually applicable to Iran, but the White House certainly has shown that they will use it mm-hmm. for that purpose. So yeah. Yeah. In, until you can sort of repeal that that broad authorization with something new, you're never going to get. Well, let's hope we can. What what we might also be able to do, even in these you know limited political opportunities, is circumscribe those prior AUMFs. You know, no war here without congressional authorization. No war there without and. And I, I'm hearing lots of conversations about doing that on Venezuela, on mm-hmm. um, on Iran right now. So basically, clarify that the 2001 AMF does, does not, not include these but things. I mean, but I yeah. think it's, it's problematic that the idea that the previous AUMF is a default to Whatever interpretation yeah. of any conflict that the that the executive wants to enter into is that's part of the problem because any new AUMF could be then treated. You know, in the same way. Now, if we did it again, it would be far more limiting language. But the fact is, the language is pretty limiting now. I just keep keep thinking of the Marines and sailors that I know back in my district that are going to be put in harm's way. And there's just no way in hell that we should be putting them in harm's way without the approval of Congress. That's That's what the Constitution prescribes. And I take that very seriously. Yeah. All right. Well, another. My this is my last uh, congressional atrophy question, hmm. and it's about it's about impeachment. <laughs> I knew it. I, oh you God. knew it was going to come the, up. The, the mother of all atrophies. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> well. So you know, uh, certainly with Congressman Huffman, I've been talking to you for a few weeks here, and it seems like every time I come to you, I, I have a theory that is something to the effect of, are you are you guys getting slow walked here, and are you finally coming around to the idea that. Hey, maybe there's something to this. I'm we're getting played a little bit that this is an intentional position of democratic leadership to slow this process down and to not lead us toward impeachment. That has been your working proposition, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> We've had a few conversations about maybe that. Maybe Trump's uh, maybe Trump's strategy as well. Yeah, I, you know, I I don't know. I think it's premature to say that that's what democratic leadership is up to at this point. Um, I'm still um, ready to assume that our leadership and Nancy Pelosi in particular is is very much um, in a thoughtful, uh, deliberative, forward progress, but smart progress mode. Um, now, you know, if we get to some point where it just becomes obvious that impeachment is the only way to move forward, I'm going to be very restless and uh, you know, I'll, I'll take my concerns to, to a higher level. Right now, all the things that I want to see happen are happening. You know, we're fighting the fights on subpoenas. We're fighting the fights on contempt. Okay. We're doing our investigations. The all accountability right, but, machine is rolling. But to say we need more investigation also means, hey, what I saw from the Mueller report, hey, what I've already seen from this president does not necessitate impeachment. Does not. But it's a high bar. It should be a very high bar. Yeah, it's an extraordinary it remedy. And Nan, you know, Nancy's in a in a position where any signal other than the one she's sending is that all the, all the bricks just fall. 
I mean, mm-hmm. I think she's got, she's handled this in the way that she. Yeah, it, it pro- I think she believes, and I think she may be right, that if it if it has to go there, it needs to be a reluctant impeachment. Yeah, I agree. Well, any extremely any, reluctant at this point. Well, any but any impeachment should be. Any but what I what I'm hearing from Pelosi is okay, more investigations, and then that's sort of stymied by this blanket. We're not going to cooperate with subpoenas mm-hmm. and testimony, and then you know there's this sort of middle of the road approach of hey, we'll hold them in contempt, and then even today Nancy Pelosi sort of refuses to endorse the idea of contempt. You know, you've had the the uh, William Barr; he's been held in contempt by the Judiciary Committee. Yeah, but now that, that hold could off be on a floor vote. That I could would, be that, that could be picking our battles. Under contempt, you know, I, I think you got to be thoughtful about which contempt fight, which subpoena fight, you want to take all the way to the mat, because yeah. we're going to make new law on some of this stuff. This this will go, and well, we got to ask, where's the country on all this? I think we got to bring the country along, myself. I think asking where the country... You, sure, you always ask where the country is, but I think, think we've got to lead the country. Opinion. I think we got to lead the country. No, I agree with that, but the extent to which we are leading them is something that we can measure. Are they there? I think they're coming. But that's up. also saying that impeachment is, you know, by and large, a political process when you might think of it as a constitutional duty or as a... It's both. I think of it as a constitutional uh, duty, not as much as a political uh, issue. And I trust my friend Adam Schiff. You know, Adam is a good friend and I I trust... I thought he got kicked out. (laughs) (laughs) Well... That's the next season of A Handmaid's Tale. (laughs) So, you know, uh, I took my oath January 3rd, very recently, the first oath I've ever yeah. taken in, as an elected official. I take it very seriously. I didn't uh, take an oath to protect and defend the Democratic Party. Right, right. I took a, an oath to protect and defend the country against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I take it really seriously. And I want to look back at my service in Congress when my kids are my age. Hope I'm still around and let them know why I did what I did or didn't do. And I want that to be driven by the Constitution and what's best for the country, not what's best for the next election yeah. or for my political party. That's for sure. But, but just that's speaking what from, your, from yeah. your position, right? You're in R plus one district. Yeah. Um, I, and I understand that there's a lot of suburban support for... My feeling is that the right uh, politics are ultimately what's right for the country and for the Constitution. Uh, but that might not be true when, you know, we do sort of know, to, to play a little bit of devil's advocate for Nancy Pelosi, you do sort of know the Senate's not going to impeach him. They're correct. Not going to remove so him. what? Oh. So I, I, guess, I, I guess there's... <laughs> I, there, I hear you, there's, but, there's a, a but he's not going to be removed from office, so... So, Matt, there's a couple of things I would say. One is that as a rank-and-file member of Congress who does not sit on intel or oversight or judiciary... Um, I have not seen anything that you haven't seen with regard to the Mueller report. There mm-hmm. are uh, a lot of redactions. I'd like to see as much as I can without violating any sort of grand jury rule or anything like that. Well, as a grand, member of, grand jury rule should frankly bend to our needs. So, well, I mean, as we, a, we have important work to do here, and the idea that we would somehow not be allowed access to certain right, things because 100%. of some grand jury rule, I mean, that's, so that's I, crazy. I, as a member of Congress, I've already been, uh, you know, sent down to the basement of the CVC, the visitor mm-hmm. center, and yeah. you know, I had a, a classified Leave your briefing. your cell phone up there. Correct. Mm-hmm. I, I had a classified briefing on a, uh, a matter pertaining to my district, the nuclear waste that's stored on the coast in California, this morning. 
and uh, those are important briefings. I'd like the similar opportunity to have a briefing on the unredacted version of the Mueller and report. I, and I certainly get the, the need to see the unredacted report. Well, there's more than that. It, there's a number of things that are in that report that are redacted that I'd like to see. I'd also like the opportunity to understand why Mueller uh, refused to reach a traditional prosecutorial judgment because he doesn't fully explain why in volume two of the report. Uh, I read the report back to for, you know, forward and back twice, mm -hmm. uh, and he talks it about... It does sort of lead to the OLC portion, right? That he, but he doesn't explicitly state that. There's mm -hmm. also the issue of uh, Article One versus Article Two, and what certainly was... puts in some bits about Congress's authority. Correct. Oh, so yeah. why did he not reach a traditional prosecutorial judgment? Because when I look at the 10 uh, times where he says Trump impeded the investigation, I think four of them... Uh, Adam and others think five of the ten. Um, uh, at least certainly four, a few of them, right? Four meet the three-part test for mm -hmm. uh, obstruction. And so why then not reach that judgment? So I want to know the answer to that. And then moreover, I also want to know about things that aren't in the Mueller report because those weigh in to a decision as a rank-and-file rank member of Congress whether or not we move but forward. But when you say that, and I, and I, and like, I totally get you. Yeah. But you're saying, you know, um, I assume that one of those instances of obstruction of justice for you was the Don McGahn stuff. That, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we need and, to hear from him, too. And that's not redacted at all. We need to hear from him, too. That's that oh, no. half the report, basically. A is, lot of substance was not redacted. There are other things that were. I want to know what those things were. And I'm, uh, as we often are, we, we go down to a skiff and we, we read and we're not allowed to keep the notes. You know, we have to keep the notes in the skiff and... That's what we do. That's what we're supposed to do. And I also want to know about those main things other than the potential involvement of Russia in the election and the potential obstruction, where they're uh, you know, significantly issues of concern to Congress and could be considered impeachable offenses, things like emoluments clause violations. Uh, things like his financial entanglements, the president's financial entanglements Nothing with, in that with Russia, with yeah, Deutsche we're gonna, Bank. We're going to need to get some why information. Is it Dan, is, Dan is taking care of that at the Ways and Means Committee. And then yeah. to Dan, why is it that we still have not seen this man's tax returns yeah. other than those that have been leaked uh, to uh, whoever, whoever right, but got them? Let's come back to your, I think it was a rhetorical question about, oh, the Senate will not vote to remove him from mm -hmm. office. This one kind of drives me nuts. Because when, when you hear things like that, and when you also hear, you know, some public opinion poll where a question was asked in the abstract, do you, do you like impeachment or not impeachment? Um, public opinion is not static. Uh, the political direction of the Senate is not static. These things change. They changed in Watergate as the story was told during the course of impeachment hearings. Uh, there's every reason to believe, I think, they changed very mm -hmm. dramatically. Yeah. And so this is why I come back to our obligation, not just to take the temperature of the American people, but no, I, to kind of create some of our own weather here. This I is where that. I'm deeply concerned about the future of journalism. And regardless of what we learn, you know, the way it will be reported and the way it will be absorbed by the American people. And for, for those of you like yourself that are trying to uh, play fair and just tell the American people, tell your audience what you're actually learning and uh, you know, trying to do decent fact-based analysis, uh, the reality is because of the way we consume media, that is becoming drowned out by uh, the left and the right. Mattering. Yeah. This, is, this is a really important point because we, we all draw certain, cor 
you know, historic corollaries. The Nixon situation was dramatically different in that Nixon's efforts notwithstanding, yeah. the way the very good reporting that was done by the Washington Post and others yeah. was consumed is dramatically different than the way news is being consumed. That's a good now. point. Yeah, well, I mean, Woodward and Bernstein would be a one-day right. story, and there's no Fox. There was no Fox News right. in the '70s for right. you know Richard Nixon to you know on one side. Well, but the economy is humming, right. you know. Right. Uh, right. And it, I, it's ama- it's amazing to me. But um, well, let me let me ask you a question, Matt. Sure. Because I think one thing that you could imagine our Democratic leadership worried about is if we start into that official impeachment process, it's the only thing the media will talk about. Mm-hmm. And all of our efforts to lower prescription drug prices and to work on infrastructure and to do election integrity and everything else that we promised we would do and won't even I, get a mention. I think that's partly fair. Does the media... It's already happening. Does it's the happening. media have the ability to walk and chew gum uh, yeah. if Congress tries to walk and you chew gum? You know, I, I, I say this all the time, that Congress is the best covered institution in the world. And it's not just Hmm. the Huffington Post covering it or the New York Times. There's uh, Stat News, who's going to cover, you know, the hell out of any drug pricing bill. Mm -hmm. Certainly we're interested in in drug pricing uh, stuff. There's a huge hearing today. Um, But a lot of what we've done, H.R. 1 through 10, has not received the type of coverage that I think is appropriate. Uh, And, you know, you could make the argument that they're messaging bills, but they really shouldn't be messaging bills. In many cases, they're... The only reason they're messaging messaging bills is because of the Senate. And because of the president. Well, the president, too, but the Senate... So there there are a lot of things, as as we cover, as you cover, the the story of Russian interference in the election, past, present, and future, uh, there are a lot of elements of H.R. 1, as an example, that specifically would address future foreign interference in our election. And if anybody on the other side is being sincere about wanting to address foreign interference in our election, they ought to at least hold a damn hearing. They don't have to vote for the whole bill. Just have a hearing on that issue, on foreign interference in our election and what we're going to do to address it. The Senate, you know, Mitch McConnell the other day said we all need to move on. Well, meanwhile, they haven't done anything. They vote on judges. They haven't voted on anything in the Senate of substance in months. It's reported. It's pathetic. But it's reported, but it's not, I think, well absorbed. The extent yeah. to which the United States Senate is complicit in the, this Trump dysfunction that we are The Senate are. right now is a legislative about, wasteland. It's, it's, it's self-described by Mitch McConnell, a legislative graveyard. Yeah. Well, well I'll give you the, yeah. final, the final word. From the off the cuff. Well, my, my final word, I'll invite all of you to, to give your own benediction to this, to this uh, <laughs> gathering. I'm grateful for two great roommates, um, a great staff, and, and for our friends in the press. I, I say this with all seriousness. Um, this has been a weird time for us in politics and in Congress. It's been a weird time for us. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You have been pilloried and vilified and... Um, threatened existentially in ways none of us could have imagined even just a few years ago. So thanks for what you do, even when you're letting us have it. Well, thanks for having me on. and It was a fun discussion. You're not the enemy of the people, just for the record. Off the Cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Templove. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. 
You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cup with Jared Huffman. 